Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Furioso Vineyards with Dominique Ma'e. Uh, it's June 1st, 2020. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Dom. We appreciate this. Uh, first question, most important question, why wine? Well, thank you for being here, Rich. Uh, well, there are many reasons, actually. Uh, and it has been a very long and winding road for me to get from uh, where I was to, to here and now. Um, I was not born in a wine family. Uh, I do not come from a, a, a rich family either. Uh, my mom was a farmer's daughter and uh, my dad was a working class. And some people might even say that uh, he might qualify sometimes as a redneck. <laughs> um, they lived uh, in, a, in a trailer for for uh, many years, uh, you know, while my uh, siblings were born and pretty much until I was born. Uh, so when they eventually were able to find a place to settle down, a little property with a little bit of land, uh, the first thing my dad did was actually to build a wine cellar under the workshop. <laughs> and, uh, and that was even before they, they built the house, you see. <laughs> um, but. Um, the, what you have to understand is that um, uh, in the States, uh, the word wine cellars and rednecks are really using the same sentence. <laughs> but in France, in the 70s, uh, wine was pretty much uh, the bud light of, of the working class. <laughs> so my dad's wines was cheap. Okay? Um, we will uh, get it from a wine grower station up the street. So we will walk there with his empty bottles. And uh, they will have those uh, bulk wine into those uh, 200, 300 gallon tanks. Uh, no vintage, no appellations. Uh, and they will fill uh, my dad's empty bottles and that will cost him maybe less than one euro mm -hmm. per bottle. Um, and that would be my uh, dad's everyday wine. Mm -hmm. And now for special occasion, uh, like at uh, New Year's Eve dinner or Christmas dinner, uh, my dad will go to the store uh, to pick up uh, either a, a nice fancy champagne or a good Bordeaux or a Côte du Rhône. And, and when I say the store, I don't mean the wine store. He will go to uh, Leclerc or Unico, which is the equivalent of uh, Safeway and Halbertson. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this was wine for me growing up. Uh, wine was no more than a, a commodity. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, more related to being a working class uh, than being part of an, an elite. Um, uh, as teenager here in the States, um, people view alcohol as this kind of a hyped, uh, forbidden pleasure that you can't even look at until you are like of legal age. Uh, but in France, um, people look, teenagers look at, at alcohol or wine as a, a more like a, um, a very blasé about this. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's, it's part of the French culture, I guess. Uh, myself, I don't even remember when was the first time I had uh, I drank wine or alcohol. Uh, it might have been when I was 10 years old and my dad 
just uh, put a splash of wine in my glass with lots of water for dinner. Uh, it could have been uh, after working in the garden in a hot summer day with my mom, where she gave me a, a panache, which is a, a blend of uh, beer and, and lemonade. Uh, so, you know, obviously not much alcohol there. <laughs> but bottom line is that really, uh, I don't remember at all when I first actually tasted alcohol in, in my life. Um, it's such a big deal thing uh, that, you know, your parents don't see it as a big deal thing, and you, so therefore you don't see it as a big deal thing either. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my late teens, I, I went to, to college, and uh, since uh, science was my forte and my interest, I, uh, I trained as an engineer. Uh, after my graduation, uh, I took my first trip abroad, and I, I went to uh, Canada, uh, and I backpacked and, and hitchhiked on my way through uh, Quebec. And that was uh, an amazing experience, uh, very much of an eye-opener for me and, and maybe in a way my first step uh, to the wine journey because I realized then that I love traveling, um, experiencing different culture, meeting other people uh, and also the fact that you have to put your whole life in, in one bag. <laughs> and that's why you realize you don't need much to actually be, be happy. Uh, so that first kind of haha moment for me uh, led me to uh, take a job in the oil industry. <laughs> and I was uh, actually working on uh, drilling rigs uh, kind of uh, all over the world. And so uh, there was two reasons for me to take that job. Um, well, number one, <coughs> this is an industry where you work um, really hard uh, every day for four, five, six weeks in a row and then you get um, four, five, six weeks off. Mm -hmm. So basically you are six months a year on vacation mm -hmm. and get more time to do more traveling. So that was a, a perfect setup for me. Um, I, uh, money was okay, uh, especially when you don't have to pay your rent or you don't have to uh, pay a mortgage because you're crashing at your, you know, <laughs> friend's place or squatting your parents' place and, uh, or you're traveling more, so uh, it was good. Uh, I worked for uh, many years, for five years in, uh, in West Africa and North Africa. Uh, you know, I had some interesting job in this uh, industry. I, I remember my last one was working in, uh, in Libya. Uh, it was, was Gaddafi was still in power. And uh, we were actually working in the desert for uh, an Italian company, uh, Ajip. And, uh, I had this uh, guy working with me, uh, he was uh, English, but he was very much into kite and uh, he was building his own stun kite and sometimes we will go in the desert and fly his kites. <laughs> uh, but when, when there was no wind, then you know, one of us will, guide, will get behind the wheel of the pickup truck and the other one will get the back and we'll be driving like 30, 40 miles an hour flying those kites in the desert and uh, we will cross, cross you know, like an army patrol there and we'll obviously say, those people are crazy. <laughs> but anyway, those are good memories and I really enjoyed my time working in the oil industry. I thought, you know, it was uh, definitely going to places there. You will not go there as, as a tourist mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, but uh, as I was traveling also for leisure, I went to visit a friend uh, in Japan and uh, he lived in Tokyo at the time and uh, we we got together, he had some friends, I met a girl there, she was from Australia. So long story short, in 1995, I moved to Australia and uh, didn't know what I was going to do. I went back to school, I started another engineering degree 
uh, in, uh, in Sydney, where we were living. And um, this friend who was in, uh, in Tokyo had moved to Brisbane, which is kind of uh, in the north of Sydney. So one long weekend, we went to visit them. And uh, he said, hey, do you want to go wine testing today? I said, oh, OK. Uh, sure, why not? <laughs> Sounds like fun. So we, there is a wine region there, uh, close to Brisbane, called the, the Granite Belt. Mm -hmm. And so we just took the car and we drove around and tested some wine and talking to some winemakers. And that was, that was a fun day. And at one stage, we stopped to this winery and the guy uh, who actually was a winemaker uh, was originally from Italy, and so he had these wineries there in Brisbane or in the Granite Belt, and he was making, you know, his wines there. But his family uh, also had a winery back in Italy where he was from, so he will actually, uh, in the dead season for uh, for the wine industry in Australia, he will actually fly back to Italy and help his his parents making wines there. And I thought, hmm. That sounds like a good life, you know. I could see myself doing something like this, six months in Australia, six months in France. Yeah, that sounds like something I wanted to do. So, but previously, you know, how do I get into wine? You know, I was so naive at the time that I didn't even realize you can go to school to study. I mean, my assumption growing up is that, you know, people who are into the wine industry, people who are making wine in France, it's because their parents are the winery and basically those things are passed on from generation to generation. And, and, and that's the way it was. And I never actually questioned myself about, okay, well, and do, and do people get into this industry? <laughs> so when I was there, I found out, when I was in Australia, I, I did a bit of research, found out there were actually two universities in Australia at the time, uh, was back in 95, which actually was offering a wine program. Uh, one was uh, Wordsworthy in Adelaide in South Australia, and the other one uh, was uh, in Walla Walla, which is uh, in New South Wales, mm -hmm. so in some uh, mm -hmm. states, and Sydney, kind of about four or five hour drive from Sydney. And I thought, well, maybe I could go and you know, join this one. And so I applied, but I was told right away, well, listen, uh, we can't take any, any applicant because we're only actually letting people who are already in the industry to actually get into this program. We have limited space, so uh, yeah, you have to be already working in this industry to be able to apply for this uh, course. I say, ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, was. By that time, it was the end of 1995, and I, you know, I wanted to really get into this program by early '96. So. Uh, north of Sydney, there is a wine region called the Hunter Valley. I mean, it's probably not the best wine because it's kind of very hot and humid. So, but still, you know, it's popular because it's close to Sydney. It's a very touristy area, mm -hmm. so uh, that's why it's there, probably. Uh, I, uh, I drove there one day. I took the car, drove there one day, and I went from one winery to the next. And I say, hey, I want to speak to somebody in charge, a winemaker, and I say, hey. Um, I don't know anything about wine. I just, you know, really want to get into it. I want to get into this university, Charles Sturt. Uh, I need a letter of recommendations. Um, I will work. I know harvest is coming because harvest over there will start like January, 90, January of the year. Uh, I said I will. Um, I will come and work for free for two weeks. You don't have to pay me. And all I need from you is that you give me a letter of uh, recommendation so I can actually mm -hmm. apply to, the, uh, to that school. And eventually, this guy over there at uh, Mount Pleasant Winery 
just think about it and say, okay, you're on, you start mid-January. <laughs> All right. So I, um, I got ready and uh, mid-January comes, I, I get there not knowing what to expect. Uh, and started to work in the cellar, as a cellar rat, mm -hmm. uh, as, as you do when you start in this business. And right away, it fits me. I mean, it's exactly, you know, my kind of work. And, and funny enough, after having worked in the oil industry for a few years, what we're doing in a winery is not that different. <laughs> you know, there are pumps, you know, you move things around and, and actually I was feeling very comfortable uh, with the work and really enjoying it too. Um, I, um, after two weeks, uh, the winemaker uh, came to find me and he said, uh, his name was Scott, uh, and uh, he said, Scott says, um, well, um, we're gonna pay you for you know the two weeks, and I'm gonna get you the letter as well. But also, we want you to stay for the whole harvest. So that was perfect. I ended up staying there, working the whole harvest that year in '95, uh, in '96, getting my letter uh, to get to university, which I started you know pretty much at the same semester, mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I actually got really my my first foot uh, into working uh, in a winery. And I simply loved it. It was really, uh, really a good, uh, good experience for me. And, and the people you meet and, and the culture behind it, um, you know, definitely people who are into wine are into food. Mm -hmm. and, and that's also was a great part of the perks of being into this industry. Uh, and I got to travel, uh, which is kind of eventually the goal. I uh, ended up, you know, so Scott, actually, is a long story, that Scott uh, had worked uh, in France uh, for Harvest when he was doing his own apprenticeship, uh, when he was a student, or after uh, his graduation anyway. He went to work in an area in the Beaujolais, so south of Burgundy, and um, he he, he got there not speaking a word of French, which I knew he didn't speak French, but I would always assume that the guy back in Burgundy, the, the Beaujolais, the guy he worked with, spoke uh, some English. And it happens that through Scott, I also ended up working in that same winery in the Beaujolais. And when I met, uh, when I met Alex, then the guy, he, he, tell, he actually realized he didn't speak a word of English. And so for, for like, you know, was harvest uh, that those two spent together, none of them speak, could communicate, and they were all doing by you know, sign language or little drawings. <laughs> but it was so amazing that people, because of the same set of mind, are able to communicate and, and do the job that way. Um, so yeah, I worked over there in the Beaujolais, and uh, I have to say the Beaujolais was probably one of my best experience uh, working uh, in this industry. We, uh, uh, the way it works over there, they have Beaujolais, if you, if you know, it's all cluster picked. So you can't go with machine. It has to be harvested by hand 100%. Mm -hmm. And what, what they do, they actually, at the time anyway, I think things probably have changed now, but uh, at the time they were providing accommodation to all the pickers. So not only you get you know, food, you get also lodging. So they have those old castle, usually those old you know, buildings, farm buildings and they will jam in there like, you know, 40, 50 people uh, in this big dormitory and it will be constant partying, you know, <laughs> young people from all over the country, from all over Europe, actually, and uh, it will be a constant partying time. And, uh, 
And there was never a dull moment, I can tell you that. I mean, uh, even in the winery, I mean, you start work early, and then by 9 o'clock in the morning, you have the, the casse-croûte, which is basically the first break. And of course, you know, it's bread, cheese, charcuterie, and wine. This is it. 9 o'clock, you're already drinking, you know, your first <laughs> glass of wine. Uh, and then you go for lunch, more wine. And of course, you go for dinner, and guess what? More wine. And the party starts. And usually, kind of being the oldest of some of those people, um, we will end up going to nightclub, and I was the one driving them, so we will drive to those nightclub, not come back till probably three in the morning, <laughs> and by six o'clock, you'll be up again. <laughs> and you do it for a month, and you do it because you have such an adrenaline, you know, mm -hmm. it's such like a constant go, 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 go that you, you don't have time to be tired. That's what it comes down to. Uh, so it was, it was really, I, I mean, I never laughed so much uh, working uh, harvest in the Beaujolais. I have to say that was amazing. One year there was, I did two harvests there with, uh, with Alex there. And um, one year there was a guy from New Zealand. This guy was a monster. He was one of, he could have been in the All Blacks. He was huge, tall, uh, and uh, hard worker. Uh, and it was, it was a good experience. He, he actually, <laughs> He actually one day was uh, putting the promise of a tank with somebody else and they had this pitchfork and, and, uh, and the guy was a pitchfork suddenly so he hears a New Zealand guy say hi, say are you okay, what happened, say oh I'm fine, I'm fine and they keep going and actually it happened that the guy put a pitchfork through his nail and pulled the guy's nail oh. and the guy kept on working like nothing <laughs> happened. <laughs> Well, anyway, there's tons of memory from Harvest in, in the Beaujolais, and uh, I, I think, again, that was definitely the reason. I thought, yeah, this is definitely the industry. This is what I want to be doing uh, for the rest of my life. So, um, back to my study. I was studying, I was uh, you know, picking up Harvest as it goes, and uh, uh, in 99, uh, I did like Four harvests last year. I uh, was basically starting in the uh, Hunter Valley, uh, where that winery I worked for originally, you know, had wanted me to come back. Uh, I worked another harvest in uh, Kunawara, which is kind of uh, in South Australia, slightly cooler, so it's a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So I was there for April, May that year. Uh, and then took a bit of a break and then went to, to Beaujolais uh, for September and I had lined up, after Beaujolais, I had lined up another harvest uh, in the States uh, in Idaho. Um, and the reason why I came there, uh, to Idaho or to the States is that, you know, visa-wise, I know there is a cutoff for those G1 visas they were offering. You have to be, you know, younger than 35. And I thought, you know, if I want to go at least experience one harvest in the States, I, I should probably do it now. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I ended up going in Idaho. Uh, it was October 99. And uh, a winery which you might have heard of because it's uh, Saint-Chapelle. And if you go to, to Safeway, you see lots of Riesling for Saint-Chapelle. This is what, what they do there, a lot of Riesling. Uh, so I worked there for harvest as an intern. Um, and uh, the guy I work for, uh, Steven Roberto, the winemaker, um, kind of got to like me. I guess he liked what I, you know, what I was bringing to, to, the, to the winery and, and to, to the wine. Uh, and so when Alves was over, he said, hey, listen, if you, if you want to stay, I, I, you know, I could have a position for you as a cellar master. 
understand. I thought about it for a sec and say, you know what? I think I had a good time here and also I really like this area there. Well, it's close to Boise mm -hmm. but you have also the uh, the mountains are not very far mm -hmm. off and uh, so it's it's a beautiful kind of uh, area to, to be. And the people I met actually were very nice and uh, I really like the experience so you know I said sure. So um, you got me a visa and uh, I got to work and uh, was working at Saint-Chapelle pretty much for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, then it was taken over by uh, this big wine corporation uh, called uh, Canadegua, which uh, uh, is one of the biggest world uh, company, uh, wine world company anyway. And things changed a bit, so I, uh, I decided back in one, you know what, I'm going to go back to Australia. I think, you know, I've experienced it, that was good. Uh, I'm going to go back to Australia. So went back to Australia. Uh, worked uh, over there uh, where people you know wanted me back so that was great and uh, and a year later I was like you know I'm really missing the Northwest I really you know thought I had a great time here and I love the beauty of this area I want to go back to the Northwest just one more time <laughs> And uh, that was, sorry, it was in 2002, and I was able to line up uh, Harvest, uh, not in Idaho this time, but I went to Oregon. I actually went to work at uh, Rexil. Uh, at the time, the winemaker was uh, Aaron Hess, and uh, we were just taking over from uh, Lynn Penarash, uh, the winemaking program there at, at Rexil. So um, uh, Aaron gave me a chance working in the lab there uh, for, for Rexil. And pretty much the same thing happened, you know, I do harvest there and um, I ran by the end of harvest come and talk to me and say, listen, you know, if you want to, if you want to stay, uh, I, I could get you, a, you know, uh, I could get you a full-time position here. Um, and I'd say, sure, actually it was a full-time, but it was a, a half-time full-time, which means that it will need me six months a year. And so... For a few years, I was doing six months at Rexil, and I was doing six months uh, in Australia. And that was kind of a good life too, you know. I will, uh, every year I will buy my Wonderworld ticket uh, from Australia, and I will do Melbourne, um, Portland, Paris, uh, Phuket. I had a friend in Phuket in Thailand, and then back to, back to Melbourne. That will be kind of my life for a couple of years, just like traveling uh, and working. And yeah, I, I think it was a very good life. Um, eventually, things uh, opened up even more for me at Rexil as they, they wanted me to stay like, you know, full, full time. So I ended up staying there uh, 12 months a year. And um, 2005 came, um, I had met a friend who uh, was friend with Thibaut Mandé at Willa Kenzie mm -hmm. and uh, I'm guessing that friend uh, I was working with must have said some interesting thing to Thibaut because one day I got a call from Thibaut and I said hey you know do you are you interested to, to, to move on to, to do something else and so let's talk. And so uh, Thibault and, and Bernard Vacrut uh, at Willa Kenzie are familiar uh, a position there at Willa Kenzie, which is one of the most beautiful and uh, best designed winery here in the valley, I think. Um, so I went to work at Willa Kenzie in 2005. Um, had a fantastic time there, uh, make beautiful wines for sure. And um, 
stay there for nearly 10 years. Uh, I did, though, take a little escapade. <laughs> I, uh, during those 10 years, I left for about uh, 18 months and actually went to work in Burgundy, uh, just at uh, another winery there in, uh, in Gevray-Chambertin. And so, because I never really worked in Burgundy, I worked in the Beaujolais, but I never really worked in Burgundy and uh, I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. So I worked there for, uh, uh, for 18, uh, 18 months before coming back to um, uh, to Willa Kenzie and in 2015 uh, again I was contacted uh, this time by Gerard Edsel uh, so who's running Domain Roy next door from, from here. Uh, Gerard was working with one of his clients uh, Giorgio Furioso who was starting this new project here uh, and he needed somebody kind of to run the everyday winemaking and kind of kickstart the project really because before this building there was really not much in this property uh, we had those old vines uh, we know one of the oldest here on the Warden Hill Road um, but pretty much you know everything was had to be done and um, so I said yes, and uh, this is where I've been since uh, 2015. So in a nutshell, that's kind of a story of my wine journey, but just to answer your question, <laughs> which is why. <laughs> why? Because I think, you know, you, uh, you get to live in, in a beautiful place. You know, being in Oregon, this is probably uh, one of the best places in the world. I mean, I've traveled a lot, so I can... I can talk, you know, in expertise. Um, I think also because the culture of wine is, is such a, a really cool thing because it's always linked to food and friends and, and family and, and uh, uh, so always something positive. And uh, there's something kind of unique, I think, about making wine where you, you start with something as raw as, you know, vines you put in the dirt and you end up with a product that you've, you know you make yourself you turn those vines that make grapes into wine that you're gonna uh, bottle and, and label and package and eventually you you go from that more that that product that was grapes you go to that bottle of wine uh, that you're gonna give to your customers, like you're going to hand out to your customer. So I don't think there is no other industry where basically you, you start with something as simple as basic to end up into this uh, more elevated product that you basically give to the final consumers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something very unique about this. Uh, and to me, making wine is, is a fun process. I, I, like, I like it because it fits my personality. Uh, I think most winemakers, as you probably know, are picky, picky, picky people, and I kind of like details. Mm -hmm. I like simplicity, but I like details. Things have to be done right every time. There is no chance, you can't make a mistake when you make wine. And that's pretty much you know, what people don't understand sometimes, is that 80% is good enough. Well, 80% is not good enough. You know. Um, you have one chance, you have one vintage, you have you know, so many tons of grape to work on, you cannot replace that. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure that 
you don't screw it up. Mm -hmm. And that's really uh, the key about being a good winemaker, I think, is to really uh, make sure that everything you do is the, the right thing. It's a simple job. Honestly, making wine is as simple as it gets, really. But you have to make sure that every step is done correctly all the time. And that's why it's so demanding, and you have to be really meticulous about how you do things. Um, so yeah, I think that's the reason why, you know, uh, why wine? <laughs> that's the reason, for those, for those three main reasons, I would say. The locations, the job itself, and, and basically what it represents. Uh, wine is always, uh, you know, something fun. I'm curious about all the, your, your, all the travels, all the different places you've worked, and, and kind of a lot of sort of short stints here and there. I'm curious about sort of how you developed your your winemaking philosophy. I mean, you started with, as a as a cellar rat, and then you were and you were taking formal education, working all the way up into being a winemaker in Oregon. How did you sort of develop that kind of like meticulous, simple, uh, doing it right every time? How did you get to that point? And at what point did you feel comfortable? saying, I'm the one who can make decisions, I'm the one who can do this process correctly? Well, I think it comes with experience. Um, I think I'm surprised that people who just finish uh, graduation, who just finish school, can jump into a winemaking job. I think to be able to, to do winemaking, you have to really understand the process and, and do it for a long time. Uh, I mean, look at the sushi uh, cook, for instance. You know, how many year, le, years do you spend just learning how to cook rice? <laughs> I think it's kind of the same idea. It, it sounds crazy, but uh, um, experience is, is really uh, important. And I think, again, you have to have the right personality. I think, you know, you have to, not everybody can, can, uh, can, can work in a winery and like, I won't be good working in a testing room. You know, everybody has their own uh, strengths, and uh, and to me, it has also, also has to do with uh, what you are, who you are as a person. Um, so at what point, uh, what, what did you take away from the various places uh, you've worked? Were there, were there certain moments that you can mark as terms of like, uh, I understand this now, or this is how I want to grow grapes, or this is how I want to make wine? Were there certain people who had influence on you along the way? Oh yeah, I mean, definitely people who gave me my chance, um, uh, like uh, Stephen Roberto in Idaho, Aaron Hayes here in, uh, in, uh, in Oregon. Uh, I owe a lot to those people because I, I won't be there today. Um, I think, you know, working in bigger wineries like I did in Australia, where they have way more technology, um, it's interesting, you know, as an engineer, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's interesting, but I think it takes away the soul of, of, of the wine. Uh, I come to believe that, and many other winemakers, which is the same, that really what's important is the quality of the grapes you can go. I mean, that's, that's where you have to start with. You have to have pristine grapes to, to think to make the best wine, or the one which will be the most in connection to, to the soil, mm -hmm. to, to the place here. Um, I, I think Oregon is very lucky because we have uh, kind of the best condition to grow grapes. Uh, you know, we have perfect dry summer uh, most of the time. Uh, you, you do have, you know, those cooler, cold winter. 
uh, where the, the vines can really get dormant and take a rest. Uh, and you get lots of water too in spring, which is going to make sure there's going to be always lots of water in the soil uh, for, the, for the vines to, to, to be able to go through that hot summers we have here. Um, I think also where we are located, you know, 45 degrees north, we get those very long um, days in fall and uh, we have, you know, those cooler nights still, so, you know, keeping acidity, slow ripening season. Uh, I, I think we have really, uh, weather-wise, some of the best conditions to grow grapes here in, in Oregon. Uh, the soil, obviously, is important, and, you know, both Willakenzie soil and, and Joey soil are good drainage soil, uh, which is also important for, for growing grapes. Um, I do remember, you know, back my first vintage year in Oregon was 2002 at Rexil, and uh, I remember clearly it was back in October, and the weather was just like today. It was just like blue sky, dry, and nights were cold. And I thought, my God, this place is just like Pinot Noir heaven. I mean, this is this is what you want. This is exactly the perfect place uh, that you should have. And um, and so yeah, I, I think that's the reason why uh, I wanted to be here too, to to have uh, to be able to work with those kind of fruit. Um, as I said, I worked in Burgundy, uh, did two harvests there, and plus the one in the Beaujolais, but uh, I think what people don't realize in Burgundy is uh, the summer is plagued with, with thunderstorm. I was blown away by, you know, how bad the weather can be there mm -hmm. in summer. Uh, I mean, here in Oregon, in 15 Sawyer, uh, 2002, what does it make it? I don't even know. 18, 18, 18 Thank you for reminding me. Thanks, Rich. Uh, so in 18 years, I think I've, I've seen like hail like three times in summertime. And I'm talking, you know, all the size of my nail here. It's just, and it lasts for five minutes, and, and that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, Burgundy sees some of the worst hail I, I can think of. You know, those things are the size of a um, golf ball. Uh, and... Uh, they, 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 it's very windy usually, so it goes through the canopy, it destroys all the leaves, it destroys all the fruit, but also uh, it takes away all the wood, it can cut the wires. I mean, really every year, every year you have a, a producer in Burgundy who's going to lose his old vineyard, not the vintage, you know, he used the old vineyard because of hell. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that. That's not a good place to grow grapes. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, there was a thing going for them. Don't get me wrong. I think, you know, they have an amazing story to tell. I mean, a thousand years of making wine. I mean, we're never going to beat that, you know, back to the monk. And, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you can beat that for sure. Uh, and they have old vines. I mean, the average uh, age of, uh, of vines there in Burgundy is probably 70 years old. That's the average. Okay, so maybe come back in 50 years and we can talk about what we can do here in Oregon because I think by that time we also had some very old vines which again are kind of the key to make some really uh, exciting and complex uh, Pinot Noir.
you know, when you see those, uh, we had a, where I worked for in, uh, in Gevray-Chambertin, we had some 90 years old vines. And uh, I mean, they produce like maybe like five or six clusters per vine, but berries are so small, so concentrated. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see, yes, you're gonna make an amazing wine with this. But again, if the weather let you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, uh, that's definitely something that uh, is so rare, I think, in Burgundy compared to what we have uh, here in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing I like also about the new world uh, is a sort of freedom to do what, what we want to do. Uh, and again, if you go back to places like Burgundy or Europe, you know, the appellations uh, made it so hard uh, because they have all those rules that they have to follow. And I mean, I feel sorry for them, but at the same time, you have to remember why those rules were put in place in, in, a way put, uh, in, place in the first, in first place. Um, it's because back in the 70s, Burgundy wines, or those anyway, hip wine region of France, were so popular that they couldn't keep up with the demand. Mm -hmm. And what they were doing, they were really trying to push the vines as much as they could. They were going from three, four, five tons to the necker, and and, uh, and you know you hear stories about wine being brought up at night from another you know cheaper wine region to be blended. With, with, you know, those Premier Cru and Grand Cru, just because they wanted to get the volume. And, and they will do the harvest, and then they will go back um, a month later, a few weeks later, and get a second crop, you know, those second crop that grows on the end of the mm -hmm. shoots, and they will harvest that, that too and make some wine. So uh, the quality of the wine really plummeted uh, at the time, and that's the reason why somebody said, okay, that's enough, we need to keep in moisture where stays, like uh, uh, the quality stays there. So they put in place those very strict rules about uh, the yield, uh, date where you could start to harvest, uh, how much you can add in, in, uh, in the juice, instead of sugar and acid. I mean, it was very, very highly regulated. But now it's turning out that even if you want to do a good job in, in Burgundy, uh, it's, it's, it's hard because you have to follow the mm -hmm. rules. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced this firsthand where you know, you, you're really just working at a fine line here, okay, trying to stay legal and trying to also make what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Here in Oregon, we are lucky that uh, we can do whatever we want, we can plant whatever we want, we can harvest whenever we want. Uh, and I think there are enough people here that still want to just make quality wines that uh, you know, we still have fallen into this trap of, of going for um, big production mm -hmm. and, and cheap wines. Tell me about the project here. You mentioned uh, 2015, your, your approach to start here. There's not really anything here except for vines. So tell me about what the what the Furioso vision was and, and what you've done in, in the five years here. So there was this uh, old vines here, which was called the uh, Julliard Vineyard from the previous uh, owner, uh, Julie and uh, Gerard Koschel, uh, who used to have Crumble Rock Winery. Mm -hmm. So there was also a little uh, red barn right there where this building is, where they were making uh, crumble rock wine. Uh, there was a small production. They were mostly selling the fruit to uh, other uh, winemakers, which had recognized the value of this fruit. Uh, so the fruit will go to um, Arterbury Marsh, will go to Windley, um, will go to Agrath. Um, oh, actually, actually, had uh, some fruit. And so for many years, those other uh, winery here uh, did a, a single vineyard on the Juilliard side. Mm -hmm. 
And so when Giorgio bought the place in 2015, you know, he stopped, uh, we stopped selling fruit to anybody else. We just used the seven acres of Pinot Noir we have here to make uh, Olor wine. So my first vintage uh, in 15, uh, I did about a thousand cases. So it was pretty small. I had like five fermenters, five two-turners, uh, kind of a nice little setup. Uh, it wasn't this nice building you have here. It was still working the old facility, <laughs> but you know, uh, did the job and uh, that's how we started. Uh, at the same time that uh, Giorgio bought uh, this facility, this, bought this vineyard, uh, he also bought uh, 85 acres in, uh, in Yamil, right next to Willa Kenzie for that matter actually. <laughs> uh, and uh, that same year uh, planted uh, 22 acres. So we have a new site called uh, Trovato, mm -hmm. which, is, uh, which is in Yamil, and it's mostly Pinot Noir, uh, five acres of Chardonnay as well, and we planted, thanks to Giorgio and his origin, uh, we planted some Tokai Frugliano, which is this varietal, uh, which is grown in the northeast of Italy and the Veneto region. Um, Giorgio's background is also very interesting. Uh, Giorgio uh, lives in Washington, D.C. now. Uh, but uh, his family is from Italy and uh, they used to make wine, uh, you know, uh, with his family. And he had his uh, parents, uh, grandfather and, and uh, uncle who were involved in the project. So he had lots of memories from his childhood, you know, working to the cellar with his grandfather and, and you know, working um, in the vineyard. And so he always knew that eventually that's something he wanted to go back into. Mm -hmm. And he had a very different career, you know, he's, uh, he's in Washington DC, he's, he's a developer, he's a big art supporter. All those paintings he has from his private collection. Um, uh, so yeah, that's what he, he did with his life, like very much into art and uh, architecture. And um, that was his vision. So the building here was actually his vision. So he wanted to have something very unique. He wanted a, a tasting very open. Uh, so obviously you can see you know, all the way from the Cascades behind you to the rolling hills of Dundee and, and uh, on the Willamette Valley in between. Uh, you can see the old process because what happened during harvest is that uh, this area there is a viewing area for the processing. So I got all my sorting lines over there. And again, what I said earlier, you can't screw up. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then obviously you can see when the bare walls are hatching through those uh, windows you notice when you walked in. So the idea is to have this space very open for our guests to kind of really enjoy the whole process, you know, mm -hmm. from where you at to uh, making the wine, really. Um, so, it's my other thought, sorry. Um, so yeah, that was Giorgio's project to kind of do this building. <clears throat> and um, and uh, we got some fruit uh, from our new vineyard in 2018. So now we are producing wine, estate wine from this new vineyard as well. Uh, which means that over the last uh, four or five years, uh, we have increased our production. Uh, last vintage I did about 4,000 cases of wine. And uh, when we are really in 
total full production. We have some young Chardonnay vines right over here, which are on their uh, third leaf now. So uh, we, sh you know, we should be getting full production uh, very soon. And, and therefore, uh, at the time, uh, we should be making about 4,500 cases, which is the size we want to be. Uh, Giorgio doesn't want to go more than that. and, uh, and I totally up for that because I think it's important again for if you're a winemaker you have to make the wine mm -hmm. you're not only just pushing paper and giving work orders to your staff you have to be the one who basically is there every day uh, follow up on the fermentations mm -hmm. and so you have to be really involved in the winemaking process otherwise to me you're not a winemaker mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and um, yeah that, that's where we the goal is Tell me about the sort of sustainability focus of Furioso also. I know f uh, winemaking and farming here both kind of a sustainable focus. So tell me about the vineyard and, and how you're taking care of this and, and the new site. Yeah, so both uh, are taking uh, into an organic approach to it. Uh, we haven't got certification yet. We've been pushed back a couple of years ago because we had a major issue with uh, voles uh, here on the property, unfortunately. So that pushed back our certification because of that. Uh, in the vineyard in, uh, in Yam Hill, uh, obviously uh, we only started to be organic about two years ago. Um, so we're in the process, we, we're doing the practices now, but we don't have any certification mm -hmm. uh, at this stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you What would you say after after you've you've made a lot of wine now in your career and you've made a lot of wine here and elsewhere? What would you want someone to take away from a bottle of wine that you've made? What 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 is the what is the takeaway from the, on the consumer side that you would prefer? Well, I definitely would like them to experience the place. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I want them to when they drink or wine that they can feel that okay they are in Oregon that they are in in the Dundee Hills and hopefully that they are here uh, on this uh, Furioso vineyards. Um, uh, my philosophy for winemaking by the way is that pretty light-ended and uh, I kind of again my goal is to be able to have good fruit to work with and uh, I don't do much extraction, uh, kind of uh, gentle extraction of the, of the grapes. I lack acidity in the wines. I mean, to me, wine is about uh, food and uh, to have a good food wine, you need to have a good acid wines. Mm -hmm. So I usually picked, you know, probably earlier than most people. I have alcohol around 13, 13.5 for my Pinot Noir. Um, and uh, nice acidity, so maybe they have more aging potential as well. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty hands off in terms of new oak, I, about 25% new oak. Definitely don't want to hide the taste of the grapes, that's definitely not the plan, but bring a bit more texture, a bit more volume to the mouth, that's what the, the oak should be doing. Um, and, and therefore, by not masking any other uh, flavor of the grapes, uh, I want to make sure people kind of really test again this, this terroir we have here. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, tell me about the, the similarities and differences in the, in the different wine regions you've worked in. How does Oregon compare to Burgundy, Beaujolais, Australia, even, even Idaho? What are the, uh, what's, what's unique about Oregon and what's kind of the same, the places you've been? 
Well, uh, I think Burgundy and Oregon are very similar in, in the size of the winery and I think uh, in the fact that people sometimes uh, have a small budget to work with, you know, and so the, you have to get by with, with, uh, with what you have sometimes to do things. Um, I, uh, uh, if you go to New, New Zealand or Australia, there's definitely way more technology being used. It's more like a, a process um, than really an art, I think, mm -hmm. um, which is why I like you know, this space to me is, is more, more interesting. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> As you uh, look ahead here for the future for yourself and for Furioso, what do you see as, uh, uh, from where you've come so far, what do you see as you look five, ten years uh, into the future? Well, we're still a very new brand, so we're still very much under the radar. Uh, we're getting some good review uh, from, you know, we had a, one advocate recently, which was really, really good uh, review of, of the estate. Um, I think um, we're going to keep growing our fan base. I mean, we have a big club already. I'm surprised. I mean, I'm surprised and very happy, I would say, with, with the number of members we have. Uh, I have to say we have a great team here in the tasting room. Uh, uh, so I was employee number one. And then in 2017, when we started to have some wines to be released, we hired uh, uh, Jim McGuire as our tasting room manager and DC manager. And uh, Jim is simply amazing. Uh, he has a way with people. I, I think it's a gift that, you know, uh, I will never have. <laughs> but, you know, you can have total stranger working here in the tasting room. Uh, but the time they leave, they are Jim's best friends mm -hmm. every single time. Mm -hmm. He has this way to connect with people, which is uh, fairly unique. Uh, I've never seen that before. So I'm so glad that he's on board and he put together a team here uh, in our tasting room. Uh, our goal is to make for guests a more uh, unique experience. You know, as you might have seen, we don't have a bar here. Uh, you come, you, you get greeted by a host and you take taken to a table and you get, you know, this one hour experience of, of our wines. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what we want to develop. We want to kind of make sure people who come here, they're going, they're going to get the full treatment. You know, we're not being able to take as many people as we would like to, uh, especially on weekends. Uh, but we want to make sure that whoever comes here has the best experience. And I think it shows by the feedback I'm seeing from the reviews on, on Google, on Yelp, and whatever, that we you know people have always kind of like not only nice things to say about the time they, they spend here. Not only about the wine, but also about the experience in general. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we want to keep making sure we do right. Okay, that's our goal. Um, and not only coming from me, but also from Giorgio. Giorgio has, has very clear ideas that, you know, he wants people to come here and experience something fairly unique when they come to Furioso that they will not experience anywhere else. So that's kind of uh, what we, 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 you know, we have in mind in the next few years. We don't now, as I said, increase production. We're going to keep on making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Tokai Frigliano. Um, as we get more Frigliano being produced, I wouldn't mind doing a little bit of a uh, sweet dessert wine, just like a small barrel, just because it's nice to have again for, for 
to do a full dinner. Mm -hmm. We got the, the full uh, Furioso uh, panel. Uh, we already have made some sparkling with uh, great su success. We had, uh, in 2017, we have a sparkling Brut Rosé. Uh, and uh, the second disgorging was back in February and uh, it's selling really well. Uh, last year in 2019 uh, I did a Blanc de Blanc and a Blanc de Pinot as well which right now is kind of uh, uh, you know only and, and will be there for, uh, for some time for the secondary. Um, so yeah, kind of diversified a bit the wines we have, but not increasing production will be the goal here as far as uh, production goes. Mm -hmm. So obviously we're, we're talking now uh, uh, in the middle of, a, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, tasting rooms are just sort of getting back open after being closed for a little while. Uh, and we <coughs> the future is a little bit murkier than it was. So I'm curious, this is kind of a two-part question. Um, what have you had to change over the last few months in terms of the operation of the winery, obviously in addition to the tasting room, and what do you see for the future now uh, as we're dealing with this? Well, we had to change a lot of things. Obviously, our uh, hygiene and uh, sanitary practices have been really, really tightened. I mean, you know, we, we clean the restrooms every time a customer is using it. Uh, we had to take off all our nice furnitures and you know ended up with more simple furnitures which are easy to clean. Uh, we had to also pretty much cut down the number of, uh, of tables by half. You know, uh, we had, I think, uh, 16 or 15 tables normally, and we kind of have that capacity uh, right now in, in, this, uh, in this room. Um, so it definitely has changed a lot for us, and it's way more demanding on the staff. You know, they have to spend way more time cleaning, way, way more time cleaning for sure. Uh, even the way we interact with customers, you know, you can't, we don't even, we don't really, really go and have a pool at every uh, guest at the table. Now we have to we bring a small carafe, depending on how many guests there are. And basically, we just put the carafe on the table. We just walk away. We talk about the wines. They do their own pouring uh, in their glasses. Uh, so it's not easy. It's not easy for sure. Uh, you know, especially since you know the host uh, have to wear a, a, a mask. I you know it's not easy to connect. Mm -hmm. with guests when you know you can't see your face and that's that's I think gonna be the biggest challenge I think you know we're losing some of the connections with uh, with our guests mm -hmm. um, so yeah those are not fun time for sure um, I know it's gonna last nobody can tell I mean my own take is that I'm thinking that we might see a resurgence of, of this uh, pandemic you know come October November um, and uh, yeah, this is going to be here for a while, you know, uh, probably a year, I mean probably, in the best case a year. Um, there's so much, so many unknowns, you know, with, with all this that it's really hard to make any predictions. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, lots of people are suffering in the valley, I mean, restaurants, I mean, are really suffering the most for sure. I mean, you probably have friends in the, in the restaurant industry too. and. The, uh, it's really heartbreaking that you know lots of them are basically going to end up closing because you can't operate, especially if you're a small restaurants. I mean, the overhead if you can have like you know all your tables, if you have to work at half capacity, there's no way you're going to be able to make it. Mm -hmm. So those are definitely uh, challenging times for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know wineries and 
testing are also our source offering. Mm -hmm. um, my goal is definitely not to try to make too much wine this year. I, I, I wanted to maybe reduce uh, sell some of the fruit um, if I could, but you know the market already seems to be eating the same way. So everybody has fruit to sell. If you're interested, good year to make your own wine this year, Rich. <laughs> Great time to start a business. <laughs> yes. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen a year from now. I mean, there is so many issues, both you know, with this pandemic, with the economy, which. I think we only start seeing the effect uh, of you know 30 million people unemployed mm -hmm. and uh, business struggling. Uh, that could that could turn to be pretty pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And um, what the demand for wine is going to be there? I don't know. Uh, it seems like it doesn't stop people from drinking uh, when when there's a crisis. It might actually encourage them to drink, but maybe they're going to drink something different. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they're going to go to cheaper wine. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, mm -hmm. we are in very unknown territory right now. Mm -hmm. And um, your guess is as good as mine mm -hmm. as far as what's going to happen six months from now or a year from now. Mm -hmm. But. We know it's going to be tough. So, so prior to that, prior to the last few months, uh, what were the, the biggest changes you had seen in, in the Oregon wine industry since you became a part of it in 2002? Well, it's been amazing for sure. I mean, uh, to me now, we the Oregon wine industry got to be in like the young adult stage. Uh, where you see more and more of those uh, big corporations mm -hmm. just coming here, throwing tons of money, taking over you know some of the places or, or you know starting brand new projects mm -hmm. uh, you know from California but also obviously from, from France as well. Uh, you also see people who probably don't have any connection in the wine industry, but people who have lots of money to burn and just like, you know, want to start a small kind of very high-end project, uh, very small, but, you know, kind of really, really high-end and, and ready to spend a lot of money on that too. Uh, so it's a different culture what it was even like 20 years ago where it was, you know, mom and pop style and, and really just people who were going with little money just to make ends meet and, and uh, we're really passionate about doing about their trade. Mm -hmm. Here I think you can see more people who are coming in because they think they're going to make a quick buck or because they, they, they think that you know it, it, it's a prestige image to have a winery, uh, your own winery with your own name maybe on, uh, on the label kind, kind of thing. So, um, so that's why it's changing. So. Uh, there's lots of room to grow still. I mean, there's a lot of AVA to be discovered, uh, but I hope we don't lose the diversity we have here in, in, in Oregon. I mean, we had so much, uh, what people come here, you know, to Oregon is to experience the wine, but also it's part of a bigger picture where you have the food, uh, which is amazing, by the way, and uh, you have also, you know, a landscape like the one around us, you know, you have this kind of a mix of forest and, 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 uh, and mountains and, and the ocean is close. So there is a lot about Oregon that will attract people to come here. And uh, I want to make sure we don't turn anything, everything into vines. You know, if you look at Burgundy, <laughs> they basically use every single space they had to, to, put, uh, to put vineyard. And this monoculture, to me, is a little sad. Mm -hmm. uh, I think to be 
to have the best experience for guests, we need to keep this diversity. So that's mm -hmm. very important. Uh, and I don't know if that's going to be the case. I mean, I can see we're going to see more in the next few years of lots of people uh, coming from California because uh, it's getting harder and harder to grow grapes over there. I mean, temperature are getting crazy. The fires are another issue. Water is a big issue, even if you know you don't need it ready for grapes usually. But uh, there is lots of reason why it's getting harder and harder to grow grapes and make wine in California. And I think that you're going to see those people are going to realize, hey, if I sell my place over there, my 15 millions will buy me like something three times nicer here in Oregon. So why not, why not go and do that? And we're probably going to see more and more of that, of influx of, of Californian money here in, in Oregon. Um, and I don't know where it's going to go from there. Uh, we might see also change in what we're going to grow here because it's getting a bit odd for Pinot sometimes. And, uh, and we might have to go higher elevation for sure, but also we might have to go and do some different reds. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, well, it's going to be an interesting time too. <laughs> so, so I can see why you're why you uh, well the job appeals to you because there's never any certainty. You get to you get to kind of carve it out as you go. <laughs> yes, right? choose your own adventure. Well, I don't think there is any certainty anything you do in life really. I mean, I think, and that's why it's important to stay flexible. I mean, to stay kind of open-minded. Uh, as I was saying earlier in this conversation, you know, I. I I really didn't even think I will end up here in, in Oregon or in the States. My goal was to come and do harvest in Idaho and just get the hell out of here. <laughs> and and, uh, and I happened that I happened to fall in love with it. Mm -hmm. I happened to fall in love with the place. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and so you have to be flexible. You have to kind of say, okay, well, if there is a better opportunity somewhere, if something actually makes way more sense in your life, uh, you, should, you should kind of like, you know, uh, follow that. Uh, and not just you know set your goal and just kind of go okay I'm just going to do I'm going to forget about anything else because mm -hmm. you realize that probably wasn't the first thing you wanted to do so um, yeah mm -hmm. tell me about the the wines themselves and the and the farming practices in Oregon and how they've changed uh, in in 18 years uh, how do the wine how does the wine quality compare how does the grape quality compare and the, and the practices compare to when you started. Well, I think people had to face many challenges over the last 20 years. You know, obviously, when they started here, the weather was much cooler. Um, so they had to face more disease pressure. Um, they have to, you know, face, you know, wine which sometimes sound a little bit like flimsy and, and kind of missing a bit of body. Mm -hmm. um, and so as, as, as time went by, uh, you know, we ended up having like some really hot vintages that required different techniques in the vineyard in terms of what you do uh, on you pull off leaves, for instance, you know, to, to not too much because you want to still protect the, the grapes and from the sun, um, yield. Um, so people had to adapt really fast over the last 20 years into going from a cool climate, a true cool climate, to really a, a warmer uh, climate. And uh, I think it's been interesting because you had all sorts of people who are new uh, in this industry and uh, didn't have experience with, with any of this. 
So they had to kind of uh, learn as they went, really. Mm -hmm. But I think by now, uh, we have way more experienced people here in Oregon. We have experienced pretty much every vintage <laughs> that you can experience. So I think we, we are lucky that people know uh, what to do in any situation. Mm -hmm. What are you proudest of from your time in the wine industry? Honestly, this project. Um, uh, I was so blessed that uh, Giorgio Furioso decided to hire me to, to kind of kickstart it. And to me, it was a big challenge because, okay, I've done production. Um, I've done a little bit of cellar clubs, tasting room on the side, but uh, again, it wasn't really my calling. Um, and, and basically just to start this project from scratch mm -hmm. uh, and, and design you know this build or the winery part of the building um, just uh, hiring the people uh, everything that goes with it you know uh, has been so new and exciting to me mm -hmm. and uh, and that's probably what I'm proudest of because when I think about where we were five years ago, and what we have today, and I know what what the team here has accomplished, uh, yeah, that's makes me very proud. What was the most difficult part of the project so far? Construction. I'm not going to lie to you, uh, and I don't want to go into details, but construction was. Uh, kind of uh, hair pulling uh, things I, I, I had no idea you could actually do <laughs> uh, as, as a trade uh, yeah uh, that was interesting <laughs> that, it took way longer than it should have and, and I think you know lots of things could have been done uh, differently mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to leave it like that. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything else we, you, we didn't cover that we should have covered? Um, no, I think, uh, I think that's all I can think of, really. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much thank for you, your Rich. time, for your stories, uh, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.